opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are. We're in the you know, ascendancy I, I, within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that's a hard left wing position. Hard sort of left, the hard 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 left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 the hard left, the hard left, hard left, the hard left, hard left, Hello and welcome to Real Politic, a podcast by Tom Foster, Jack Frayne Reed, and Yaya Rice, in which your three humble servants of a revolution struggle to determine whether works of cinema from through the ages are dialectically pleasing and, furthermore, ideologically correct, or whether they deserve to be consigned forever to the celluloid gulag. Paying penance for left deviationist crimes, the condemned trio shall raid the bargain basement of history until their gibbering brains are reduced to frail, dusty particles of nothingness, forced to broadcast their pathetic, final moments of agony by solemn decree of Commandant John MacDonnell and his vengeful wrath. Enjoy the fun and festivities! By the way, Phil Greaves is not allowed to listen to our podcast, as he is a cop for the police. Tune into our first two shows for a thorough dissection of the bizarro polemicism of the Atlas Shrugged movies, and then our third, as we dust off an old BBC documentary on veritable titan of racism Enoch Powell, with help from special guest Kieran Morris. Raise your fists in solidarity, comrades, for this podcast kills fascists. Actually, you kill fascists by murdering them with weapons, but shh, Phil Greaves might be listening. So maybe on the count of three, we should all say something at the same time so we can sync it up. Uh, uh, nuts. Nuts. All right. Nonce. So, nonce. nonce. Not, all right. All right. Nonce. Okay. <laughs> three, two, one. Nonce. Nonce. Oh, fuck. Is there a delay? So I'm Yair, and I'm here today with uh, Jack and Tom to talk about the Atlas Shrugged trilogy. Uh, some Some wonderful... Libertarian films, oh, yeah. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Oh, um, some great films the from the great tradition of libertarian film, <laughs> the grand yeah. noble tradition. Yeah. What was it? Anthem Film Festival. The Anthem Film Festival. Festival. Yeah, yeah. This Fantastic. won the grand prize. <laughs> the grand prize, and, 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 was and it the, the Eagle Scout, the last Eagle Scout. The last Eagle Scout. I think that was like exemplary libertarian values on film or something. <laughs> and, and the best documentary award went to Dinesh D'Souza's America: Imagine a World Without Her, a fuckumentary oh. if I ever saw one. In fairness, in fairness to D'Souza, I mean, technically, by the loosest definitions of the word, it, it, it is a documentary. And also, it's actually more cinematic than the Atlas Shrugged movies, his documentaries, because he's got these rich capitalists who bankroll them to fuck for them to, to try and <laughs> knock Democrats out of office and <laughs> fail miserably. You know, um, Atlas Shrugged does contain some great libertarian values, so... It does. You know... I'm surprised it didn't get the award, but then I guess they needed to give it a big one. They needed to give The Last Eagle Scout something. I mean, have you see, you've seen that trailer, haven't you? I saw you the couldn't trailer. let that film just leave the festival with no awards, <laughs> no accolades. Uh, it would be it would have been a disaster. They need they need to award The Last Eagle Scout, not The Last Boy Scout. That's a proper film. The Last Eagle Scout. They need to award the Dinesh D'Souza, the Atlas Shrugged <laughs> films. Rips I imagine. Dinesh D'Souza is a very regular appearance in these festivals. Oh yeah, I I, I don't I don't doubt it honestly. Um, there, there was um, a description of a film from the Anthem Film Festival, which was I mean this is quite a long preamble to the actual uh, actual talk, but but I I feel that it's in all of our interests that I that I find as quickly as I can and read <laughs> this. I so I I looked up the Anthem Film Festival uh, for the purposes of this 
and um, is, it, is it is it a yearly festival that happens? I, how long has it been going on? I, for? I think it's it's yearly. I don't know how long it's been going on for, but it definitely had a, a festival this year because um, I was looking up the I was looking up the synopses of the films that are playing, including the Money Changers, oh, the the oh, documentary yeah. by Ooh. someone somebody by the name of Mortensen, in which <laughs> Shylock narrates the history of the banking sector, oh. <laughs> <laughs> a potential minefield of anti-Semitism. I, I love how it's says uh at the top of the description for the film it says uh the story the big short should have told but didn't <laughs> top, top, but didn't <laughs> you think... resident jew i will say that i'm very excited for this film i can't <laughs> uh, what, think greedy bankers in, in inverted commas caused the financial crisis Think again. I, am, I, I think that like the... Uh, pro- it's literally just the rabbis, man. It's not crazy. It's the Jews, the full-on Jews. Shylock himself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I found um, the uh, synopsis that I found so hilarious. And this is from the short film competition at the Anthem Libertarian Film Festival. It's called I've Just Had a Dream. Which is like if if Martin, if Martin Luther King yeah. had no command of syntax, he, he would have thought that I have just had a dream would be some really co- commanding oratory. And, and the synopsis is as follows. Um, Irene is an eight-year-old girl who just had a nightmare. She dreamed that her life had completely changed. Is it just a dream? Amina is also eight years old and also dreamed and just awoke from a lovely dream. Could these dreams come true? Oh, yeah. Just, uh, oh, God. It's uh, about dreams. That's what it's trying to it's get It's got across. the eight-year-olds, it's got the dreams. You know, this dialogue that's pretty much word for word like that in uh, pretty much any libertarian film I've ever seen. <laughs> what libertarian films have you seen, Yaya? Uh, well, other than this fine trilogy, let me, let me have a think. I've got to be honest about it. I... I my only introduction to libertarian cinema is through the Atlas Shrug films, so maybe it's not the best. I feel like maybe... I've seen other stuff, but I don't. Oh. Well, I mean that there I've, are. I've seen Christian films, and yeah. they often have quite libertarian values. God's not, not dead; he's but... surely alive. He's oh, God, dreadful <laughs> it's not stuff. Dead. Dreadful. <laughs> I, I definitely think somebody should make a Nietzschean counterpart to that film called God is Dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know it's and, a play and it on that. really dry and just explain yeah. that, you know, God, the whole God is Dead thing doesn't mean that God is literally, like, he was alive and now yeah. he's dead. <laughs> but, I mean, we've all, we've all seen some films by um, by libertarian filmmakers. Like, I mean, isn't, is Clint Eastwood would surely identify as a libertarian. Like, yeah, I'm a big libertarian. Yeah, and, um, I mean... We've but I, w- I would argue that, with some exceptions, not not a lot of those values necessarily like they're not that explicit in his cinema, you know. No. You you, you can watch his films and not really think, oh, this guy's definitely a libertarian. Apart from obviously loving guns and stuff. <laughs> I I think know, some good liberal filmmakers also use lots of guns. I know? think on a personal basis, Clint isn't actually particularly fond of guns. I think it's more just that he. That's the type of film he makes. Probably similar yeah, to a lot yeah, of more liberal he's filmmakers. An filmmaker, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, um, but he does—he does have this kind of, you know, cheap provocateur, political correctness gone mad, fucking Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. kind of sensibility. Yeah. Where he—he um, he, he tells a story about how his agent presented him with the script to Gran Torino, and he, and <laughs> they said, you, you know, this is a good script, but it's not politically correct. And he read it overnight, and the next day he went in and slammed it on my desk and said, "I want this film to start production ASAP." So that's sort of, that's Clint's thoughts on political correctness. Oh, fuck. I, I should probably point out, uh, given our points of view and what have you, that there is some distinction between libertarianism as a whole and objectivism, which is, of course, Ayn Rand's philosophy. And I, the, the chief things I could find were primarily that there's no such thing as altru- altruism. It's just uh, all altruism is caused by some sort of greed, like you want something, so you're going to be good to this person and hope they'll give it to you, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, holy fuck, I don't know about you guys, but just there's there's no nice people in any of these films. The protagonists are pretty awful human beings. And 
Uh, you're coming at this from us like, okay, yeah, there's no such thing as objective morality, blah de blah, you know. Yeah. But they're just not people you'd want to be around, you know. <laughs> not a single character you could really connect with in any in any of the films, even even with the actors constantly changing. Uh, in the with the characters, yeah. you know, each films the characters yeah. are portrayed by different actors. It, you can relate with none of them. Yeah, none they them never all. hit the right actor Absolutely. who manages to really like, inhabit the role. Um, I, we can certainly talk a bit about that. I mean, um, who did you guys get as Dagny? I, I had Taylor Schilling apparently, and yeah, I think she's actually black. a real actress. Yeah, well, she got big subsequently to the film. Obviously, she was an unknown. Yeah, when they made yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> So this was what she needed to break out, apparently. Yeah, yeah, she's in Orange is the New Black. That's why I recognised her. I, I, I got Samantha Mathis, but I'm going to ver very quickly add to your earlier point. Another thing that makes them so unrelatable is that um, they were pretty much all born wealthy. It's not that they, they really are these great Randian... These, these, um, these are Donald Trumps. Yeah, possessors yeah. of an oligarchical vision that's kind of grand in its scale. Uh, I mean, like Dagny, you know, she talks about how her grandfather laid the mm -hmm. first track on, first rail on the railroad, and then presumably just sat back and did fuck all else while the workers <laughs> handled the rest of the graft. But, um, yeah, I mean, he, uh, yeah, she, she, and she talks about how when she was a child she knew that guy Francisco, who she has a bit of a love affair with. He's also a rich fuck presumably inherited his uh, business empire from his parents as well so I, I mean yeah there's literally no kind of these these people have never lived and obviously Rand sees them as kind of all the more pure for that they've never had been damaged by this kind of need to rely on other people or anything <laughs> like that um but yeah I got Samantha Mathis um as my Dagny um, the Dagny in mine, uh, I don't know the actress's name, but by that point, because the budget had got so <laughs> bad, uh, they were having to resort to hiring mostly kind of, you know, act actors, actresses who'd been in television and stuff. There's the odd actor in there, actually. There's this, there's the scene when Dagny's having uh, drink, drinking wine with uh, a doctor in uh, in um, the, the 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 haven that she ends up in. Yeah, um, Atlantis and the, uh, yeah, Galt's Gulch, I believe it's called in the oh, book. Oh, the, Atlantis in the sound, movie. Galt's Gulch sounds disgusting, doesn't <laughs> it? Does it does sound horrible. Galt's Gulch just sounds like some kind of some some, some some just diseased malodorous vagina. <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking a particularly seedy dive bar near a canyon. Like you might have been thinking that, but I was thinking something different. <laughs> yeah. what, what were you thinking, Tom? What were you thinking? What was I thinking? Galt's Gulch. Let's say it a few more times. We'll get we'll, we'll picture something. It's like a sort of like a serial killer lair, like in a hidden, secluded like <laughs> region of America, yeah. where there's force fields keeping it's, everyone out. And some stuff. some kind of swamp, <laughs> which what? it actually is. Yeah. There is force fields keeping oh, people wow. out of Atlantis. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Is, is that an actual thing? In the, oh, spoiler alert! I'm not there in this in the trilogy with my assignment. No, I'm kidding. I've seen it, of course. Yeah, <laughs> we've all we've all watched. Uh, we've all spent. We've way all watched all three parts yeah we've spent way too long in the atlas shrugged universe universe all three of us multiple times multiple times so there's a force field basically after the crash john galt points up to the sky where you see this kind of like damaged because the plane's gone through it so it's yeah. not much of a force field because the fucking plane penetrated the force field <laughs> so, and it still crashed <laughs> in atlantis yeah. but yeah it, and he says it's to keep people out so yes they have a force field protecting them from the outside world. <laughs> well, it's I'm, a crazy cult, essentially. I, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. I, we'll but, get I, to I, that. but one more final bit of Galt's Gulch imagery. I can re I can really imagine expanding on, on Tom's interpretation of that. That um, it, it to be this kind of really horrible, seedy swamp. Like the one where John Cusack's character lives in The Paperboy, that really seedy film, <laughs> where, um, and it, and where John Cusack works as a gator gutter. Imagine being a gator gutter at Galt's Gulch. Uh, <laughs> it works it works so yeah so i also was lucky enough to get the most expensive film i believe right oh. uh tw 20 million dollar budget estimated according to imdb and it was down to five million by the f uh, third film and by the third i think five, was... i thought it was under a million was it not I, I don't think it, it went that close to the bone, although I'm just using Wikipedia here to uh, <laughs> as a reference. But it was I'm sure that's as decent a source as IMDb. It was ten million on the second film. <laughs> yeah, so it halved and then halved again. 
the free market spoke. The free market spoke. I love that. That is obviously it's an obvious point to make, but it's a hilarious one. And the the it, the film failed on the market terms. May still pressed on with it and tried to make make this uh, financially. Oh, you see, man, it, it was government like lobbyists working for like shady other companies that yeah. like, stopped this good film from getting out because they had their own like uh, looter self interest, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, I, I, I think the, the, the second one, it, it, they released it to coincide with Obama's uh, re-election, didn't they? Re-election campaign, mm-hmm. and somehow Mitt Romney didn't become president. I think that this film, it was hindered from the very start by the forces of the evil, crony, capitalist, socialist, crooked banker conspiracy that's ensconced in Washington D.C., according to Forbes magazine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where the socialist aspect of that comes in. As far as I can see, Bernie Sanders is the only socialist in Washington, D.C., and he's a fucking sock dem. Oh, uh, there's crazy things going on in America. Crazy. Yeah, crazy things. Anyway, let's, mo- let's move That's on. neither here nor there. Well, neither here nor this there. was a crazy thing that happened in America, and I don't, uh, I don't know when your guys' parts were set, but uh, part one was set in 2016. That's when the film it? opens. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we let... are living in Atlas Shrugged Part One now, gentlemen. We can draw some parallels. Um, I mean, I, I, an interesting thing when when I was watching um, <laughs> what's it called? I Ayn Rand and the Prophecy of Atlas Shrugged, the documentary oh. um that that really uh sort of adulates her, really really valorizes her her contributions. Did, did, did they come out in favor of Rand? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For all the talking heads are pro Rand in it, and uh, yeah. Yeah, that they basically all seem convinced that since the 1940s, U.S. economic policy has got more left wing. Since the 1940s, when Rand wrote the book, I mean that was the height of the New Deal, wasn't it? That was um, mm. when when FDR and Truman um, had basically accepted um, parts of the kind of post-war consensus that you saw also in Europe where where these incredible welfare states were founded such as in our country although that yeah. didn't happen to that extent in America there was still a huge program of investment that went on in the 1940s and ever since then that has been chipped away at not least in the 1980s when Britain and America both had, had incredibly right-wing governments who managed to shift our society um yeah, very determinedly in a Randian direction, in a direction of ultra individualism and unfettered free markets. And yeah, but um, they they, I, see, I, they seem to think Obama is genuinely a socialist, or that, or that, or that Bush madness. Was, they, yeah, but no, but they have this whole sequence where where they play. Uh, I think it's the Directive Ten, whatever. Fuck, we'll get to it later in in the thing. But they read out all these ridiculous laws. Um, and then they have this sort of montage oh, yeah. footage of Bush and Obama. It's like you think Bush was too far <laughs> to the left. Yeah, I mean, I think the only progressive thing that's really happened in America since the 40s or 50s uh, was like civil rights, pretty yeah. much. Uh, not Nothing economic uh, yeah. I can think of. This There's being a- like slight steps towards progressivism but always because like people like Ronald Reagan would push it so far to the right that we gotta just bring it back to the center a bit and <laughs> but there's been no genuinely progressive moves in in the, like the finance uh, sector I mean 2008 uh, banking crisis mortgage crisis all that well in Ayn Rand and the prophecy of Atlas shrugged what they uh, try and argue um, and this is the various different talking heads they have in the film. They, 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 try, they try and argue that the 2008 crash was caused by too much regulation. And they sort of have this classic, this classic undetailed right-wing reactionary thing. They're like, a problem came up, and they just thought, oh, we'll come up with another law for that problem. And then the problem deepened, and then they just came up with another law. They think they can just come up with a law for everything. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. Like, you know, amazing, amazing stuff. Oh, there's an amazing bit in Atlas Shrugged. I'm not sure. It's in the book uh, where they, they're saying uh, they, they only pass laws so that people break them and <laughs> they get to control them through people breaking those laws. It's insane. So <laughs> laws only exist because we'll break them, guys. 
that, that, that's it's inevitable. Right. Let's go commit some crime, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I, su- I suppose we should sort of uh, talk our, I am sure, voluminous amount of listeners through um, through basically the basic narrative of Atlas Shrugged, and um, yeah, what what and what what happens from from film to film, like what how, how yeah, this this polemic posing as narrative. What, what is so I was going to say that there is a slight problem of talking them through the narrative in that my 15 pages of notes uh, have almost no plot at all in They're... them because it, it is just a polemic. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned some basic like plot points when they rarely happen, but for the most part, it's just a bunch of people sitting in various rooms and talking to each other about business. And they fuck sometimes. Uh, yeah, very unsexually, I find. I was disappointed in it. It was like a good, solid 30-second sex scene with not even, like, side boob. Yeah, I know. They, well, because they've got to market it, as whereas Ayn Rand was very... She was libertarian on both economic and social issues, so she she had a perfectly reasonable... Oh, she, she explicitly did not believe in any god. Or yeah, I mean, like she, she, she had a perfectly reasonable love of attractive people going at it but most um american conservatives now suppress that um that that perfectly natural instinct and so and so the makers of the film had to market it towards not libertarians but outright conservatives who uh, yeah like as you say might be quite religious and may not enjoy a bit of side boob even Oh, I know it's but, terrible, but then you'd think those same people wouldn't even want to see like adultery with protagonists, you know? Like, yeah, that's that's bad guy stuff there well, for them. I mean, I mean, that's about as far as sort of fantasy goes for them in a movie. I think like that's uh, you know they they will sort of say, well, you know, these are the grand heroes of of our movement. Completely they, like remove moment of silence for their poor sex drives. Like major work, people who are working class in any of these films at all, really, from my knowledge at all. No. To be honest, it's all people from the establishment in many ways. You, you can see, yeah, it's pretty. Mm. Uh, well, the establishment of business it's <laughs> well, pretty uh occasionally pretty a working terrible. class pe- person will appear as a plot point oh as an extra yeah or as like someone in like an old like a like an like kind of crowd going like you know, yeah placard. like I the security guard or the uh, waitress the secure, the security or the guard. i mean I'll, I'll point out i uh, out of the protesters with the signs saying like uh, fat cats fair share your wealth we are the 99.98%, where's my fair share? Or help the unemployed or something. There's seven of them. And they reappear in multiple <laughs> scenes throughout it. I counted. Nathan Rabin, in his review, he said approximately five. It's seven. It's, that's yeah. how many extras they hired to limply hold placards up, sort of lifting <laughs> them up and down. Like, yeah. in a sort These of extras are really acting fashion. hard. Take, oh, they're, they're earning their paycheck. Great extras. <laughs> great, great extras. Um, but but what, what we, tell them about the security guard, Tom. The, yeah, there's a scene in... Uh, towards the end of part three when okay this is well it went off the rails long before this mm. point i think we, we we go off the rails pretty much it's just ever on the rails so. it's never on the rails and, and, and john gold has been kidnapped by the uh the state and taken to the state science institute where he's hung up on a Wall of Electricity. The which Wall is, of Electricity. Which is constantly referred to in the films as Project F. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a Wasn't yeah. that a shit film about like, a bunch of asshole teens having I a party? I think it was, yeah. It was. Well, that Project X. It was Project, Project X was, yeah. yeah. It was the found footage film. So but you only know, have a Project it, X because you want it to turn it. into Project F as the night goes on. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's just like they've obviously just got like a heart monitoring machine in and they've got just a metal frame and they put it up on the wall and they've just... And, it's the worst set dressing you'll see. Mm. It's just terrible. It's all dingy spaces that they, that they shoot it in. It's, it, it's dreadful. And basically Dagny and uh, some of her, her, her comrades, you could say, comrades. From, from Atlantis, uh, come along and um, come to save gold. The C word. <laughs> and yeah, she, she goes to enter the State Science Institute and um, the security guard's there. 
and he, you know, she, <laughs> she pulls out a gun on him and tells him to get out of the way, or she'll shoot. And she, and then the security guard goes, "But well, I'm not supposed to decide. You know, I can't. I'm not supposed to choose. <laughs> I can't make decisions for That's myself. It. I can't make decisions for myself." <laughs> and, uh, and and she shoots him. Yeah, she <laughs> murders this guy like a great hero. Just and this is a recurring theme yeah. uh, in any sort of apologia I've seen about this book or the movies is that. Well, you see, in the universe of Atlas Shrugged, what happened was the government, uh, over the many decades, it didn't just happen overnight, they, they trained the populace to literally not be able to think for themselves, so oh, wow. all the actions make sense. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah I guess that, that within that context, actually, it does make sense, but that's not the world we live in, so it's completely unapplicable to reality. <laughs> Let me actually put a finger on what is the government in the world of that destruction. What's their it, ideology? Is it is it like is it is it socialist? Is it like is it a hybrid of that or like? Uh, I, I I think uh, many libertarians probably argue it's somehow beyond ideology. It's just truth, you know. It's a uh, it, it's not that you know politicians don't give a fuck about anything. It's it, it's all it's all because they all want money and power. Yeah. And, that is why we're seeing people like fucking Donald Trump doing so well. Is people believe this shit? Yeah, this stupid. Every politician's painted with the same brush. They're all just in it to win it. You know. Just, yeah. I, well, I mean, um, when uh, the, the sort of liberal journalists will sort of say, oh, Corbyn supporters think that every single MP is a cynical, self-serving careerist. It's like, no, we don't think that Corbyn's an MP. Corbyn are like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, exactly. But uh, I, I mean, I love I love the government in, in Atlas Shrugged. I mean, I don't, not that I love their policies, but <laughs> because yeah. I, as I, I don't think their... Some of their policies, even as a socialist, are just insane. I don't think like... their policies would satisfy any anybody on the left or the right and this, all right and just point just gonna make this clear to all our listeners all of us are pretty far to the left like we we would not identify as liberals any of us yeah i'm just i'm, just, I'm, I'm putting that out there so if it was a really extreme far left policy we would be the guys who would sympathize with it presumably and their shit policies. Yeah. So, uh, but I think it's hilarious that the, the, the government they get together in their in their sort of boardroom, and then they're like, um, and so they, they just start the conversation like, so I think we can all agree that capitalism does not work, <laughs> and then they leave this huge dramatic pause, and then they're like, without government as a partner, yeah. and it's like okay, <laughs> um, there's no there's no president either. It's just a head of state. the head of state played by Ray Wise yeah. from Twin Peaks. It's called head of state Thompson in the film. Yeah. Yeah, because you just have to remember that altruism don't real guys it's just uh, nobody's nice nobody nobody's... is really nice ever <laughs> no um sh should we go through directive 10 point 10 to oh, 18 i think we can yeah a lot of if you've got if you've got something then go ahead Passing mm. a lot of acts like the real re yeah. rail, reunifi rail reunification act. The rail reunification act, great stuff. Which, which terrifies Dagny. She's like, <laughs> yeah. she goes, "You've nationalised the railway." <laughs> like, Every law terrifies these fuckers. Every law. <laughs> You've nationalised the railways. It's like they've just read a copy of the Corbynist manifesto. Yeah. It's the only time you can tell most of them are even trying to act is like when they're responding to it, like a news story of uh, some. <laughs> New laws being passed. Oh God! No. <laughs> That's when their faces move <sighs> slightly. <laughs> um, but but yes. Yeah, so, so they so directive ten two eighty nine. It's the one that uh, the guy from Twin Peaks, uh, Laura's murdering incestuous father, um, <laughs> Leland Palmer, aka Ray Wise. Uh, he basically comes on to uh, the TV and delivers these set of laws. Um, so the first one is that nobody can leave their jobs. Like, these are all predicated mm. on the public good, by the way, general welfare, ideas that are argued against vigorously in the course of France polemic. Um, so, so the first one is, yeah, nobody can leave their jobs, nobody can quit, nobody can be fired, everybody is in their jobs for good. Um, which, I mean, sounds like a surefire recipe of exploitation, I think. Um, recipe for exploitation. Mm. Number two is owners cannot quit. They can't retire, they can't sell, and they can't transfer their businesses. Um, 
like that this does not sound socialist to me at all because i, I you know i think we should be we should be wanting them to fuck off wanting them to <laughs> to give give their uh, businesses to us the third is that all copyrights and patents are transferred to the government via gift certificates from their from their owners um and the fourth sort of ties in with that it's that no new devices inventions or goods are to be manufactured or created <laughs> so, so no no advance like, they, this is where it's evidently clear that, that Ayn Rand has never read a word of Marx she does yeah. not understand materialism she does not understand how how leftists think that, that social progress happens concrete yeah. relations of power and production the government in, in these films is intent on destroying itself it, you know what it is, at least yeah. about the last point, is that Rand and the objectivists believe that there's no reason for governments to fund research and stuff like that. And so she must assume in some kind of black and white logic that that means that the opposite, communism, believes that no private people should invent anything ever. Yeah. Uh, it should all be done by the state. Everything, everything. Yeah. It's like no, no new inventions. It's, it's, it's no, no ideas, guys. Stop thinking. Stop how, it. I mean, just how? What would you? How can you believe that anybody thinks that's a good idea? But honestly, how how does she think that that? I, I I guess it's kind of her hyperbole to say this is the direction in which our society is going. Um, that, that, like, you know, state control centralization does not lead to innovation. Um, I mean, it's just nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> um, Absolutely. The fifth is that every company provides the same amount slash quality of goods as in the basic year, no more, no less. The same amount slash quality. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, not only have they, you know, just got a half ass everything by, by, governmental mandate but they um they must produce the standard amount as in any given year which is totally not socialist it's not according to their needs if they're just producing whatever they perceive to be the standard amount that not that might not be enough eventualities might ensue that necessitate mm. people having a bit more of this company's produce than they would generate in a standard year. So I mean, I, just genuinely, where Ayn Rand was coming up with this stuff from is baffling. Um, in, in the base, well, I, I think that most of it can be traced back to her negative experiences in the Soviet Union. But yeah. that last point, like, th there was never. I, I'm not a Soviet historian. Somebody please correct me if I'm wrong. But I, there was never a top-down law that said that all like i've got i've got one of these new directives here all steel mills must produce steel at the same level of output and distribute according to the needs of the people that last bit that's pretty socialist yeah but the same level of output i, I you know there's never been a law in any communist country uh, that has uh, said all factories big and small they all produce exactly the same amount that's yeah, it. it's that's it's it. it's economic nonsense, um, and 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 it's not the kind of stuff that's believed on either the left or the right, and it's a complete straw man argument that anybody thinks this in the first place. Um, and and the sixth ties in with that last point, and it's that everybody has to spend the same amount of money as they would in a basic year. Now that is just government mandated <laughs> austerity. But, but there's absolutely nothing socialist about that. I mean, it's comparative <laughs> to wartime rationing or something. But again, like, where, where is she coming from with this stuff? And the seventh is that all wages, prices, dividends, blah, 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 are frozen. So no one gets paid. Yeah, I mean, actually, free. I mean, the crucial difference is that some things, like I say, I think rail fares should be frozen. Uh, for example, I think that there should be rent caps. So that is stuff that does resemble actual leftist thought, but not on fucking everything. Not including wages. I mean, I like um, people on the left in this country are some of the ones who've argued the most vigorously against caps on benefits and public sector pay. So to, to just limit any amount of money that can go to anybody is, again, not shared by anybody from any political strain. 
So, yeah, those are the seven rules in Directive 10.289, which, by the way, is a really weird name. Directive 10.289. How many directives do they have? What is there a Directive 10.288? What kind of weird shit Must do they be. have in there? Are they act- Maybe there are actual left-wing policies in one of them. Maybe di- <laughs> Directive 10.290 is just a socialist dream. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, towards the end of part one, there's actually a list of four directives that are being uh, read out. Uh, one of them we already mentioned, the steel mills thing. There's also a moratorium on the building of all railway lines. Oh. So just no more trains, guys. That's it. <laughs> Even though it's the only method of transport in this fucking civilization yeah <laughs> for some reason which we'll get to in a bit because it's they, they'd obviously talk about that at the beginning of part one don't yeah, they um, yeah exactly it, the, the whole ring of this country relies on purely just trains trains but no more of them guys more <laughs> no, 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 no more trains yeah. no more trains <laughs> uh, th- there's also a, a directive that says big companies no longer are no longer allowed to move from poor states to rich states Oh, right. Because <laughs> there's like this big concern because Colorado's really rich now because there's all that oil and stuff. And this last one's related to that. There's a new federal tax on Colorado. <laughs> on the state, not on like the rich businesses there, not, not a punitive tax on the wealthy. No, no, a no. federal tax on Colorado. <laughs> yeah, they, they the don't... fuck? They don't seem to have any idea of like kind of how how you can grade taxation yeah, <laughs> or anything like that. Progressive state taxation. State is really rich. We'll just take all your money <laughs> from the actual state coffers. I mean, I'm, I, I'm again. I'm not an expert in U.S. Uh, political theory uh, and law, but I just I don't think that's how federal taxes work. They don't single out states like that. Uh, I mean, there's probably economic bans and stuff and various things. They're probably Rich states probably do give a bit more in certain ways, but yeah. it's not done as a federal tax on, say, California, which is uh, has a, the fourth biggest economy in the world, I believe, California does. There's no federal tax on California as far as I'm aware, I'm sure. In, in, the, in, the, in the universe of this, of this film and this trilogy... <laughs> Uh, it's in 2016, in, in this 20, year. 2016. <laughs> Man, imagine this happening in 2016. They believe that, uh, well, according to the film, California is considering seceding from the Union. <laughs> so, and Oregon is overrun by gangs. So, yeah. I will actually mention that I played a little game where every time they mentioned Colorado, I wrote 420. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I wonder what the weed situation is in the Atlas Shrug universe. Because <laughs> I was social no libertarian. Of this. They were clearly trying to sell to a wide audience. I believe. Yeah, well, that's because Ayn Rand. Like, she, you know, weed yeah. wasn't her drug, was it? She, she fucking popped reds all day. <laughs> Just amphetamined uh, up to the fucking hilt. Probably party with L. Ron Hubbard, getting, oh, getting mental with it. <laughs> So um, basically, so, so, so there, there, there's this incredible scene that is really indicative of, it, apparently, well, I found out from uh, Ayn Rand uh, and the prophecy of Atlas Shrugged that it's really indicative of the overall philosophy of the book. However, it's just a hilarious scene in, in the... Uh, in the film so so basically there's three people on the train on the john galt line that literally all they show you um there's these these tense conversations back at uh taggart international hq where they're all talking as if this is packed train but they only ever show three people on there (laughs) and um so basically um it's this like politician and his poncy British communications director or something. So so uh, so it starts off the British guy is like, Kip, why check your watch? I don't even need a sundial to tell you we're as late as yesterday's apologies. Oh, as God. late as yesterday's apologies is just an incredible Randian phrase that just makes fuck all sense. Um, and um. then and then there's this incredible bit of foreshadowing where um this, the senator is just sort of like, I swear I'll make it a priority to nationalize this railroad. And, uh, and then the Ponzi British guy just says, history showed us 
It is the only way to make it run on time. As if to foreshadow something. As if he's maybe kind of shooting himself in the foot there a little bit with his ideas of yeah. state ownership being good and whatnot. And then, yeah, there's this huge crash. Like, nice bit of video game CGI. The whole whole place is just up in flames. Um, but it turns out that I found out in Ayn Rand and the Prophecy of Atlas Shrugged that basically... Rand goes through every passenger on the train in the book, and there's more passengers mm. than three in there, mm. and she tells you what each of their sort mm-hmm. of backgrounds were and why, why they, deserve they deserve to, to die. die. Yeah, yeah, why they deserve... So, for example, so, no, so, really. this, so the guy in Carriage B was a professor of sociology who taught that individual ability did not matter. Everything is achieved collectively and that it is, <laughs> and that it is masses that count, not men. And, and so it cuts to this talking head, like, yo, so there are no innocent victims here. Oh, my word. So that, that's the kind of philosophy she has. With, it, you it, should it, die if you want to collect your This insane godless belief in a cosmic justice it doesn't make any sense. And, and a brief personal anecdote is that I, I, uh, I'm not friends with him anymore, but I, I, I did um, know this guy uh, who was you know, very obnoxious, very arrogant, and a big libertarian. Uh, mm. but, you know, thought he was so clever, and I remember once him going off on a huge rant about how he hated Bob Marley just with an <coughs> incredible passion because Marley's um, basically Marley was dubious about medical treatment when he got cancer, and this guy who I knew was just like that's disgusting. He should have he should have told the world that cancer treatment is great, and but mainly the main thing he objected to was that Bob Marley. Um, betrayed his own personal principles by when he was desperately scared that he was going to die he got cancer treatment from <laughs> from standard <laughs> medical doctors and my friend hated him for this well my friend he absolutely despised him for this and i think that's a very good um encapsulation of the libertarian fetishization of personal responsibility yeah yeah there's no room for empathy jack of course not. Of course, not. I mean Bob Marley. Of course, he, I mean he was gonna. He, die. he was only. A, he was probably a looter, man. He was probably yeah. a looter. Probably one of those looters. One of the se- all seven of them holding up their signs. Yeah, <laughs> lots of people are looters, Jack. You, you gotta gotta get in with the lingo. Everyone's a looter, man. Just not not these good Randian heroes, though. <laughs> these, these people ain't looters. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, part one opens with. Uh, just the best way I could describe it is uh, the opening music from every Marvel film for the last 10 years. It's <laughs> like this really, really heroic. And of course, I just, just pictured Captain America. Just <laughs> part, two's, part two's uh, score in the first scene is like that, but with really incongruous woodwind popping over it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there was any woodwind going on here. <laughs> did you t- did you take note, Tom, of the opening music at all? It was. I'm sure it was dramatic. Yeah, it was. It had a very similar description you gave to it. The kind of that sound of a big stuff, bombastic orchestral, just kind of yeah. And because it because the production company was was Atlas Productions, was it? It was Atlas Productions Limited. No, sorry, it was it was distributed by Atlas Distributions Limited. However, it was produced by The Strike Productions. The Strike with an exclamation mark. Is that only part three? What about the other? Movies? I, I think parts two and three. I think the first one might have had different companies involved, but I'm not entirely sure. I did not pay that much attention to the opening credits. I just saw Atlas something company something. something. Yeah. Well, it it was it's these two guys who um, produced and co-wrote every installment, isn't it? John Aglialuro and Harmon Caslo, and they're these big yeah. big businessmen who. Uh, just basically really loved Atlas Shrugged. And, and they, ha- they have no history in cinema, do they? Well, John Aguilero doesn't, does he? Uh, I don't think either of them. pretty should, much just a love of Rand, as you say. We're going to make a picture one day. We're going to do it for Ryan Rand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just got so out of their depth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was so out of the depth. This this entire project really just and, and to kind of because how how long is the book? How many pages is Atlas Shrugged itself? With, yeah, potentially, you know, because the, the speech itself 
which is featured in the third one, which we'll get to, which is the big kind of like moment in the novel takes up over 100 pages where, where John Galt's sort of addressing. addressing uh, I've heard like, 60 to 80 pages depending on printing, but yeah, same. I can see up to 100. First edition of Atlas Shrugged was 1,168 oh. pages. So just, just for reference, I think that might be longer than my copy of Marx's Capitals Volumes 1 and 2. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a novel. That's not a novel. That is a, a, an incredibly weighty polemic. In fact, it's two in one book. <laughs> he was honest about it, you know. Um, yeah, there's some really rubbish kind of explanation about trains being really popular in America in 2016, um, despite the fact that I'm always surprised to hear that people still travel on trains in some places there, because they're, they're not they're not big in a lot of parts of the states. They're, they're People like to drive. People really like to drive. We've so... come a long, a long way from the Woody Guthrie hoboing days of the 1930s, mm. of the Dust Bowl. I mean, of course, the, the explanation comes down to, as is revealed a little bit later on, uh, that gasoline prices are $37.50 a gallon. All right? In, in 2016, Damn. this is again. Uh, and the actual gas prices, I looked this up on the AAA, they're an insurance company website. Uh, <laughs> as of January 2016, it was $1.99 and 7.10 of a cent per gallon. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't, uh... So off by a little bit, a little bit. So prescient. Uh, so goddamn present. <laughs> the prophecy of Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> now, I don't know when the book was meant to be set. I don't know if it even has an explicit year it's set in. The near future, um, I think. That's, that's but there was very much a title card here that said 2016. Okay. Which, uh, again, is interesting because a, a little bit later on, uh, we have... We, we were introduced to Dagny. Dagny Taggart, yeah. Um, and... I'm sure her BlackBerry was really, really fancy in 2011. <laughs> but, but now it's just me that's got one. Everyone, everyone no, else that, has discarded them. <laughs> I'm sure there's nice-looking, modern, sleek BlackBerries. I don't really know. Um, but this is not one of them. And she's meant to be fabulously rich, really like, a businesswoman. She has... No problems with consumerism, so why would she have such a horribly outdated phone? I mean, obviously we can forgive them. Horribly outdated phone. Why any idiot would choose to have such a piece of shit, or, or would choose to to get a new one, a, an update the record, on their previous BlackBerry at Christmas. <laughs> I believe that 2016's Dagny has the exact same phone as 2016's Jack Frayne Reed here. Um, I'm not sure, though. <laughs> it, it, it might be even shitter. It could it, be even shitter than my phone. Which one, yours or... I don't know. I thought you said you got a new one recently. I did get a new one. It, it, I did get a new one. That's why I'm saying her 2012 Blackberry yeah, could be yeah, a lot yeah. shitter than my state-of-the-art Blackberry. <laughs> but, yeah, the... the, the yeah, um, this opening montage is just like, yeah, I don't know, it's like Zack Snyder was trying to make Man of Steel and he got distracted and shot a bunch of trains, you know? <laughs> it, 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 the, the shaking camera's going on and like, it's just different color filters, you know, like trying to make you really feel feelings about these trains. <laughs> That's worth pointing out. Zack Schneider could well actually dip his toes into Randian waters uh, with with his own version of a Fountainhead. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see how it stands up to these fine films, won't we? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you know Zack Schneider better, better than anyone. Yeah, you wrote your dissertation on him. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Uh, I, I still I still have flashbacks, Jack. It was a great dissertation. I'm just throwing that out there. It was a really, really interesting piece of writing, and it wasn't positive towards Zack Snyder. I'm just going to uh, protect Yaya's cred there. So the main focus of it was <laughs> Zack Snyder, but what was the kind of the the hypothesis of it? Um, and did you what, see what, much libertarianism in in his sensibility? Uh, well, uh, the main thesis was arguing like about the relevance of auteur theory and saying basically that Zack Snyder could be argued to be an auteur and therefore there's, you know, there are definite flaws with classical auteur theory. And 
yeah, uh, in answering your question, Joe, I, 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 obviously there's not a lot of economics talked about in any of his films. What? What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't have to have a PhD in finance uh, to understand his uh, cinema, but his like the ideology of his characters, his protagonists, it's, it's very individualistic. You know, and he, he does not pay much credence to like societal norms exactly, but he just kind of does. He, he just wants to just kill everybody and doesn't, doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> Look at the mass Destroy cities. Justice, yeah. No, no concern for you know the little man or any human life. You know, apart yeah. from the main characters. Like I remember in Man of Steel, there's like these new DC films like to they bring back a lot of the characters from the comics and bring them in, but they don't know what to do with them, so they just end up killing them off. So like there's a scene in I think Man of Steel when Lois Lane is in a plane when all the destruction is taking place around Metropolis, and there's a few other characters that you've been introduced to. They all die in the plane. And then Lois Lane is just the one who has to be saved because that's her only purpose in the entire story, uh, just to be saved. She has nothing else. Yeah. To, you know, they try to make her to be a more no dynamic character, but of course she just falls back on being that essentially in a Superman mm. film as sadly she's always been, But because they could think of nothing else to do with her essentially. Yeah. <laughs> or mm. she has to go places to get things. That's another uh, thing they like to do with her character. Because again, they don't know what to do with her. Yeah. She doesn't have any superpowers, so you know... Yeah, well, I mean, at least this film's got a, a, a strong female protagonist who, who we see in, in three lives. I, well, she's a bit shit, isn't she? And and and, and of course, Rand... all of the characters are very two-dimensional. Oh yeah, I know. There's no development whatsoever. I I know I know, and 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 actually, that I mean, there's this very interesting bit which maybe says which maybe says quite um a lot about Rand's attitudes to gender, which is where um Jim yeah Jim Taggart. So Jim meets this uh and in my film he's played by uh, Patrick Fabian from Better Call Saul, by the way. So as as some actors you would know in it, but yeah, he basically Jim um marries this working class woman two scenes after meeting her in a supermarket where she works, and uh and, and it's amazing actually they even helpfully explicate um what rand is trying to convey from this relationship by saying look love can even cross class boundaries but basically his, his new wife comes up to dagny and she's just sort of like i'm the woman of this family now and dagny says that's okay i'm the man oh it's like yeah much better than just a fucking Sick one of those burn. shitty women one of those rubbish women things that doesn't who'd want to be one of those you'd want to be one of them you want to be yeah she may be a woman uh, but at heart she is a man it's very uh, elizabeth the first isn't it i may have the body of a weak and feeble like woman thatcher isn't it yeah yeah, well, yeah there you go uh yeah i mean Dagny still gets probably the best rap of any of the women in this film yeah. is hank's wife in parts two and three oh uh, hank's much? wife is portrayed in part two as just a fucking nuisance oh she uh, is she is just the worst person according to this film she's basically in part two to occasionally gratuitously flash her cleavage and Mm. to piss hank off enough that he spontaneously demands divorces he's like i'm ready to give you a divorce i'm ready to give you a divorce (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the gift that keeps on giving yeah, she's portrayed as just a nuisance. And, and, and oh, the, in fact, you're right, most women in Outlaw Shrugged are portrayed as just nuisances. The very first time we meet Hank's wife, the first thing she says is, uh, I don't have the exact quote, but she's just admonishing him for working late on their anniversary. All right. <laughs> I, 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 we, bearing in mind that we've just seen the previous, where he was, when, he, when he was at work, he wasn't doing anything important. Nothing he couldn't have done over the phone. Like. Yeah, exactly. He just needs to sit in his office and feel like the big man, Hank Reardon. He's a yeah. fucking massive egotist. But he yeah. does buy his wife a gift, though. We do have to remember that. What's he buy? He oh. buys her a, uh, a bracelet, which is made from the, his, yeah. his own <laughs> His own company's metal. What he buys cunt. her as a bracelet. And I've got her exact reaction here. Yeah. You're giving me a railroad spike. <laughs> 
She is bang on. That is just a load of shit. He's a rich yeah. fucking prick yeah. and he could have bought her any fucking amazing thing that she actually liked. What a Instead, it's a bracelet made out of his special reared-in metal, which <laughs> I did some research. Yeah. And obviously, they don't go into too much detail because it is made up. It's fictional. But it's essentially an alloy of steel and copper. So just a mixture of those two. That's that's the magic of reared-in metal. Copper, one of the cheapest metals around, and steel, which not as cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than gold or anything. And he's just like, here's a copper and steel bracelet, lovely wife, happy anniversary. Sorry I wasn't there. <laughs> and yeah. then he goes into another room with, I believe it's his business partner. Is it Paul? I want to say Paul. I don't know. Uh, I, I, and he eats his steak dinner on his own without his wife. <laughs> His anniversary. Uh, this is in part two, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how soon after that does he fuck Dagny? Um, a pretty long time actually. This oh, is really? about two, twenty minutes or so into the film. I guess because uh, they try. He and... doesn't fuck her until about an hour and five or so. Oh, okay. Because I guess they they try and give you a you know build up a bit of sympathy for him, don't they? Like, yeah, you need you need matches. to see that this woman is just a bitch. Uh, exactly. So it's he's all right to cheat on her. It's fine. It's cool. Yeah. And the only indication we get that he even thinks this is at all like a romantic day and. Bear in mind, I'm not a romantic. I I don't I'm not really big on this kind of stuff. But at the same time, this is taking a bit far. Uh, <laughs> it's just so the cold. Pace, isn't it? the, the only indication is that we do get a short, like, ten second scene of them fucking, uh, and <laughs> then he immediately gets out of bed. She says, "Where are you going?" He says, "I've got work to do." <laughs> Conveniently, for plot purposes, that's when Dagny calls and they start their little flirting thing. But... Ah, I see. So, yeah, slowly but surely. I mean, I, what I love, I, I think it's especially prominent in the third film where they're trying to save everything. I think it's it's Dagny and John Galt. So, so they like they get all the workers like slaving away on the railroad, and then they just go off into some little room to fuck. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, some like darkened yeah. room, some seedy fucking storage room or something. Because yeah, they need to get the trains from one side of the tracks to the other. So yeah. she gives this big speech trains. Yeah, trains! Yeah, exactly. If you watch out the Shrug folks, you will see a lot of trains. If you like Yeah, seriously, train spotters, they should watch this film. Yeah, really. If we could, yeah. We don't just mean heroin addicts. We do mean them as well. If we can recommend it. Yeah, you might be able to tolerate it on heroin. And she just gives this speech. And then uh, as all the workers go off to do their job, she just runs off into a side tunnel and Galt follows her and they just start fucking. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, come on, Tom, Tom, you've got to tell them about the most romantic, the sexiest, oh, by oh, far yes. the most erotic sequence really in the whole of the trilogy. Oh, tell, tell them about the sequence well, in part three. Well, in part three, when Dagny is in Atlantis and she's, you know, realising why this is, you know, if the world could be like this and they have a little montage her and Galt, you know, wandering around Atlantis, and it's all topped off, you know, what's more romantic in a montage than, you know, a canoe polishing uh, sequence, you know? <laughs> it, it comes out of nowhere, literally. There's this shot of, of Dagny and John Galt just polishing a canoe. It's really erotic, isn't it? It's yeah, just... both doing it very suggestively as well. Yeah. Both sort yeah. of, like, this exalted look on their face while they do it, like, just kind of pure bliss in their eyes. It's just how it kind of just fades into to that from just completely random footage of them walking around kind of these yeah. forests and then just the shot of them just polishing, the <laughs> polishing a fucking huge uh, canoe <laughs> but there is so much I think unintentional eroticism in these movies I've got at least two moments in this one <laughs> uh, one quote Paul would you like a lift in my limo and he, I swear he winks. I swear he does. I, I, there's, I know, a, there's a knowing look or something going on there. See, that must appear multiple times in there because I wrote down in my notes, quote unquote, have you ever ridden in a limo? Pick up line for cunts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Jim Taggart says that to his working class wife. I, when he uh, I will say that I don't know if it's the nature of the book or if it's these films, but it feels like they're really, really trying to stretch 
that shit out. Yeah. And they don't even succeed because even though the copy I have of this film is one hour 37 or so, the actual movie, minus the credits, which is seven minutes, one hour 29. You know, they don't even make a whole 90 minutes with a thousand (laughs) page book to work from. Mm, They all, they all have like, they all kind of come running it around about an hour and a half each, don't they? If you, if you, Mm. if you don't take into account the credits and stuff that usually bump it to an hour and 40. On each, yeah, each they do love to pat themselves on the back. Very nice credits. I think they were the most enjoyable parts. <laughs> Big quotes in the opening. I know we're kind of jumping around a lot, but yeah, this it. is your wake-up call, America. <laughs> words by the narrator in the first minute of this film. Your wake-up call, America. This is what I'm saying when you were reading that synopsis. You know, yeah, <laughs> actual dialogue. I mean, they, they did intend it to be very timely, didn't they? But 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 to Randians, Rand is always timely. Like, <laughs> she, she always sees Seems, uh, her writing seems to have a lot of bearing on whatever is happening at any given time. So it just seems to be the way it is in, in the in the Randian world, which is our world, because the world is Randian, because her prophecies were it's, true. It's just truth. It's yeah. just truth. Um, uh, do you guys have much about Ragnar the Pirate? I, I love this guy, but he ooh. only gets three very brief mentions in the I'm, first part. Ragnar the Pirate, he's sort of a character that's mentioned throughout the trilogy, and you you get a very brief glimpse of him in the third one, uh, in Atlantis, and it just... Oh, <laughs> how glimpse? I really... I, I, I want to see this guy, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They built it. It's literally because, of course, another big part of these films I think we need to mention is a lot of it is taken up by chunks of news footage... Mm. Well, I, I love all the appearances from the Fox News anchors in it. Like when Sean Hannity turns up in part two, just like, come on, guys, this is Economics 101. 